Father, we, we do come before you, Lord. We ask, Lord, you know what's going on. And Lord, I'm thankful, Father, that uh, you're walking people through these things that are going on in their lives, Lord. And, and Lord, just like you're walking all of us through our stuff, Lord, whether that be sickness, whether that be um, pain, Lord, whether that be emotional stuff or whatever it is, God, you are in the midst of it with us all, Lord God. Just as David said, Lord, you are, if we make our bed in Sheol, you're there with us. God, there's not a place we can go that we are away from you. And so, Lord, I pray for each one here today, Lord, as we dig into your word, God, I'm asking, Father, that you would speak the words that you want spoken, Lord, that you would do what you want to do, God, and that there would be no room, Lord God, for my words, Lord, that there would be no room, Lord God, for um, things, Lord, that don't need to be said, but Father, that you would speak, God, please, we're begging you, Lord, no one came here to hear from a man, Lord, we want to hear from you. And so, God, would you speak through your word? Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you prepare us, Lord God, for the things that you want to say and the things that you want to do in our lives? I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, last week, if you remember in chapter 21, we looked at this idea of the authority of Jesus, right? Like Jesus is authority. And how do we do that? Well, first off, we looked at the fact that he went and he cleansed the temple of all the money changers and the animal sellers, right? And we talked about the fact that basically these money changers and animal sellers set up in the biggest area on the temple mount. And we looked at that map. You guys remember? It was, this is the court of the Gentiles. This is the court where the people that were maybe Jewish, but were lame or blind or not 100% that's where they could be. And that's all the closer they could ever get to God, right? By the Jewish law, that was it. That was the only place they were allowed to be. But they couldn't even really find any place there during this month of Passover, during this time. Why? Because all these money changers and animal sellers set up goods and set up all their booths and all these animals everywhere and all this stuff. And there was all this stuff happening in this big, big area. And Jesus came in and what did he do? He started flipping tables. He started throwing stuff around, right? I love what it said because he was like, he was like, you know, shooing the animals away and getting people away. But then it says it gets to the birds. Did you notice that? It says he didn't flip those tables over. He was just like, get them out of here, right? Like it's almost like that bird was like, oh no, right? And Jesus is like, I'm not gonna hurt you, right? And so he was getting their attention. He was getting them out of there. Why? Because he was trying to say, man, my house, my house is not a place for this. That's not the point. And so he established his authority by saying to everyone that's in there, like, what have you done with my place, right? What kind of house party are you throwing up in here? Yeah. And so after that, we get rid of all the animal sellers and all the money changers. And we talked about the fact that they were like basically the mafia, right? They would say, oh, your money is dirty. Give us your money and for a 10% cut, we'll give you clean money. And then they took it and they sold it to the animal sellers who jacked the prices up two, three times what an animal was worth so that you could go kill the animal. It was a, it was a racket. The whole thing was a racket, right? If Jimmy Hoffa saw this, he would be like, sweet, cut me in, right? Like this was something that was not good, not holy, not at all amazing. It was horrible. And then what did he do next? You guys remember Jesus brought in all of the lame, all these people that were probably out on the periphery that were just couldn't find any place to sit to receive alms, couldn't, couldn't find any place to get as close as they could to God in the law or by the law, he brought them all in and he's like, he healed them. And we talked about the fact that that showed his authority in so many ways because first off, he cleaned his house out, but then he's bringing people in and he's making them whole. He's giving them opportunities that they previously did not have. Do you guys get that? Think about it. Imagine being healed from your blindness in the temple during Passover and then recognizing five milliseconds later, not only can I see now, but I also can see the temple that's standing in front of me that I can now go in. That I can go in. That I can go into the court of men for the men and the court of women for the women. That I can step one step closer into what the law would allow me to have access to God in. Do you understand how much Jesus was saying like this door that humanity has created, this door, this whole concept of the temple and everything was there for a reason. The Holy of Holies wasn't something you just barged right up into until Jesus died in the curtain tour, right? Yeah. 
But before that, there were rules and there were regulations. And so Jesus was saying, why are we holding all these people back? Why are we not letting them in? And why are you taking up this place where any non-Jew, the only place a non-Jew could ever stand, you're taking that space to get money, to make money. Today, we're gonna see Jesus questioned by the religious leaders. And they're gonna ask the same thing that they've kind of been asking him. They're gonna be like, what authority are you doing these things from? By whose authority are you doing this? And then we're going to see Jesus give two parables. And these two parables, you guys, are basically indictments against legalism. They're indictments against legalistic religious leaders, but I'm going to do something here because that is specifically what it was, but I'm going to change one word. It was an indictment against legalistic religious people. You realize it doesn't take a leader? You don't have to be a leader to be a legalistic religious person? Right? So like, let's get that out of our mind because I want us to have a heart and a mindset like we always do, where when we come to his word, we don't just say like, well, I'm not a religious leader. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not a scribe. I'm not that. So this isn't talking to me. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. There's not one word wasted in this Bible. Not one. Even in the Old Testament, y'all. Right? All of it matters. All of it has impact on us. Now, we got to let the Holy Spirit be the one that guides that out and, and teases that out and shows us what that looks like for us. So don't think I'm here getting ready to bring a hammer, right? But if Jesus wants to bring a hammer through the Holy Spirit into your heart because of how you're living, well, then let him, right? If he wants to comfort you and say, man, you're doing pretty darn good. And there's some areas that I want to work on, but you're doing really good in this. Man, accept that, receive that. I'm not here to say we're all doing horribly. But the one thing I don't want us to do is to walk out and be like, pastor says, I'm great. Because I don't think any of us are doing great. We're all works in progress, aren't we? I don't know about y'all, but when I study, God always is revealing things to me like, man, you, you gotta work on this or you gotta watch this area of your life. We just had a meeting yesterday and I, I walked away from the meeting and I'm like, man, I screwed up. <laughs> I said stupid things I shouldn't have said, and I, I had attitude on things that I shouldn't have had attitude on, and so God's like, yeah, you're, you still got a lot of work to do, and I'm good with that. I would rather hear that from the Lord than to be like, I quit. I would rather hear that from the Lord and, and receive that and, and grow in that, recognizing that I need him that much more than to think that I've got it figured out and that I don't need him to tell me that. And that's the difference between these two. And so here, this is what we're going to see, you guys, is that Jesus is going to give us these two parables, and they're an indictment. And they're a great reminder of what God expects from his children. And we're going to see in these two, in these two parables, here's what God expects in this order. Do his will. He expects us to do his will. And then he expects us to obey his will. And you might be listening to that and be like, no, wait a minute, hold on, that's in reverse. Well, that's how Jesus laid it out, so that's what we're going to go with, right? We're not going to argue with that. But, but I think the more we explain what that looks like, I think the more you're going to understand why it's in that order. I think it's in purposeful reason why it's in that order. Because we can't obey something we're not doing. And you'll see what I mean. Verse 23, let's read. It says this. Now, when he came into the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven... He's going to say to us, well, why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all count John as a prophet. And so they answered Jesus and said to him, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the chief priests and the elders, they were upset. They were upset with what Jesus was doing. Why? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, they were the final authority on things. How dare this hick from Galilee come up in here and tell them what's what? That's really what they thought. If you guys doubt that, like read the book of Acts and read how they felt about the fishermen from Galilee. 
If you doubt that, think about the fact that like the whole way through the gospel we've been reading, right, that they're going to Jesus and they're kind of looking like, who is this guy? This nobody from this nobody little town. I've said that I feel like to me, I, my heart, man, like I, it resonates with the disciples and with Jesus and just this whole idea because I, I want to stop for a second and, and have you think about this. Where I grew up in Perry County, Pennsylvania, it's known. It's like a joke in all of central PA. Here's the joke. You ready? Perry County where the men are men and the women are too. Perry County where the spit tobacco comes out both sides of the truck. There's some other ones that are more crass. I'm not going to say. That's the way people look at my county. And in all fairness, like our county prides itself on the fact that we have no red lights. There are zero red lights in my entire county. And Perry County is a pretty big county in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is a pretty big state. So we're, we're a big chunk in central PA. And we pride ourselves in the fact that our whole county doesn't have a red light to the point that whenever there was a bridge that was being worked on, they had a big sign that was put up above the red light that said temporary because <laughs> they wanted to make sure. But guess what else we're known for? We have one of the highest rates of death rate from the roads of any county. Why? And so everyone looks at us as a bunch of redneck hicks. And there's a level of pride to that, to be perfectly honest right? Like people in Perry County will joke about our own self, but man, if somebody else does, we're like, well, it's on. You're going to get beat down. Think about it from these chief priests. These would be like the Wall Street tycoons of New York or the folks that are in high finance or, or high, you know, like working on Broadway or they're in the know. They've got the connections. They're the people. That's, that's these type of people. And then they have this guy coming up in here that's some hick in their estimation, changing everything, going about things and doing things that they're like, who, whose authority are you doing this under? Like, who gave you permission to come up in here and do this, you hick? Who, how dare you? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Like, in other words, they're saying, like, can I speak to your manager? That's kind of what they're saying to Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'll tell you who my manager is. Answer me a question first. Because who was his manager? God. Who was Jesus? God in flesh. Jesus was his own manager. Jesus was the final authority. It was Jesus' house. It was God in the flesh. If anybody had a right to go in and say, this is not how I want this to look, it was him. If anybody had a right, to, oh, I want to stand up. Woo! <laughs> if anybody had a right to come in up in there and start rearranging things and being like, you know what? This is garbage. It was him. And he did. But notice that he didn't just kick them out and, and say, I want this place to myself. You guys have messed it all up. Leave me alone. no. He kicked out the rabble. He kicked out the stuff that didn't need to be there, the stuff that was never there to do any value for God at all, wasn't pointing anyone to God at all. Why? So that he could bring people in and say, come to know God better. Come to, come to get a closer walk with God. Come in, be healed, be changed. That was his heart. That was always his heart. I don't know, man. I'm like, if I were a chief priest, I would hope that I would look at that and be like, whoa, my mind is blown. I've missed this whole thing all along. And yet that's not what we see, is it? It's not what we see. We see these guys looking and saying, whose authority are you here for? Who, who's, who, who's over you? And you got to remember you guys in this mindset, in the Jewish mindset, that's how it worked. Those chief priests had a Pharisee or someone that was above them that taught them as they grew up. Do you guys remember the Apostle Paul saying, look, I was the Pharisee among Pharisees. What was one of the reasons he could say that? It wasn't just because he was so darn cool. No, he was under the Pharisee of Pharisees, Gamaliel. 
He tells us that. He's like, I was under this guy, and that meant something in the Jewish culture. He was the man. We read about Gamaliel. Gamaliel was not a stupid man. He was a very intelligent man. He's the one in the book of Acts, whenever the Sanhedrin and everybody, they call uh, Peter and John, and they're yelling at him and everything, and, and Gamaliel's the one that said, hey, you guys, if you keep hammering on these people, and this has nothing to do with God, then you're just perpetuating it and making it grow bigger, right? But he's like, so just let it be. Because if it's not of God, it's going to fizzle out. But he's like, if it is a God, you're standing in the way of this. So he's the one that was like, come on, man, use your head. This is bigger than us. This is bigger than you. And you need to recognize that. So that's where Paul came out of. So I'm trying to get at this point that to the Jewish mindset, he had this rabbi, Jesus, had to have somebody above him. And he did, God the Father. (laughs) And so he asked them a question in return, and I love that. And I just want to say this to you guys, man. If, you're, if you find yourself in a place where people are asking you hard questions, I say be like Jesus and ask them a question. When people are like, how do you know this thing's true? I'll say like, how do you know it's not true? How do you know there's a God? Well, prove to me that there's not a God. I'm not going to answer that question because I can't. God has to. I'm going to pray for you. Right? I'm going to pray for those people when they ask those questions, but I'm not going to debate them. Because two reasons. Number one, I'm not smart enough, to be perfectly honest. And second off, and more importantly, I think, I don't think that's what we're called to do. It's God's job to fix that. It's God's job to bring people to a place of repentance. Right? What's our job? Tell people about Jesus. You guys, you got to understand, Jesus had already made it abundantly clear why he was there. Hadn't he? Think about it. The triumphal entry. They already understood that Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting on. He said that from the very beginning. Remember last week, we went back and we looked at the book of John in the very beginning of the gospel of John. What did Jesus say the first time he went in and cleansed the temple? When he actually bothered to sit down and make a whip, he's like, whoop and started whipping people and getting them out of there. The first time he did it, what did he say? He said, they were like, whose authority are you doing this under? And why, why are you in here doing this? And he said, tear this temple down and in three days it's going to be raised up. Right away from the very beginning, he was saying to them, like, you will not take me out because I am the one you've been waiting on. You're not going to get rid of me. It's not going to happen. He's been saying it the whole time, you guys. They've witnessed, these chief priests, these leaders have witnessed the triumphal entry where he was receiving praise from the people. And what were they saying? Shut them up! Why are they talking to you that way? We're not receiving the praise we're due, but you're going to get it all. Come on. And what did he say? If they shut up, the rocks are going to cry out. The cleansing of the temple a second time. It was his house. He had every right to do it. The healing of the lame and the blind after that. Do you guys remember what happened then? These kids were coming in and they were saying the same thing that was happening in triumphal entry. Hosanna. Glory to God in that, right? Like saying like, man, like Hosanna. Like saying, save us, Messiah. O son of David, save us, Messiah. That's what they were crying out. And what did they say to the kids? Shut up! Stop talking like that! What are you here doing? And what did he say to them? Haven't you read, O learned people? Haven't you read anything? Do you not get a single thing that you're seeing? We're not going to shut them up because they're doing exactly what they were called to do. They see something more plainly than you do. We're not going to shut them up. And so Jesus here rebuking these religious leaders. Why? Because the religious leaders refused to stop for five seconds and look at their own lives and say, hmm, maybe I don't know everything I think I know. Maybe I'm not quite as smart as I think I am. And you guys, the same thing's happening today, isn't it? I think it is. I think in churches all across America and all across the world, we have people that come to church that walk in and man, maybe they're saved. Maybe they had a moment in their heart where they're like, man, I am a sinner and I need you, Jesus. Maybe they had that moment, but somewhere along the way, you guys, they've lost that. 
And they started thinking, man, I know God's word better than these other people. And I've got this figured out better. And I don't swear like they do. And I don't do drugs like, I, like they do. And I don't do this like they do. And I don't do that like they do. And, and so therefore I'm better than them and they stink. That's not, that's, that's not the heart of a Christian. The heart of a Christian is, guess what? I'm a beggar. And that's all I ever will be. I'm a beggar. I've got nothing to bring but the bread of Jesus. I've got literally nothing in my life of value except Jesus in me, changing me. Like when we get to heaven, you guys, if you're a Christian here today, when we get to heaven, I don't care how many crowns you have. Do you know where they're all going? They're going to be hucked right back at Jesus' feet to be like, here, you did this. It's yours anyway. That's the point. If we start losing track of that, you guys, I think we need to be careful because I think we might be heading towards a religious heart, a heart of a religious leader that's saying, looking down, looking down from our ivory tower, looking down and thinking like, oh man, you know, Jesus obviously needed me, but he definitely doesn't need that guy or that girl. And we wouldn't say these things out loud, would we? But have you guys ever been to churches where that kind of was evident? I have, where it seemed pretty evident, sadly. You guys, why were they asking Jesus what authority they were under? Well, here's why. Because in their mind, the way they thought, they were the final authority. So what they were saying to Jesus was, you never ran this by us, buddy. Who do you think you are coming up in our place and telling us how we're going to do business? Like, we know what we got. We know what we're doing. And what were they doing? Well, maybe they were catching some kickbacks off that 10%. Maybe they were catching some things going on. Maybe they didn't like it because they just lost part of their revenue stream. Maybe they didn't like it because they were worried about the fact that this one guy was coming in and making waves and everybody liked them more than they liked these guys who were just trying to do things the normal way. Do you get it? So Jesus does what he loves to do. He answers their question with a question. He knew that they were stuck. Listen, the question he asked them was this. The baptism of John, where was it from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? Where did this come from? What was the point of all this? And you guys understand, the answer to that question tells them what authority Jesus came in. Do you understand that? He was answering their question by asking them that question because if they answered honestly, then they had the answer to their question. Why do we know that? Well, a couple things. First off, John's baptism, if they said it was from God, they already knew what the, the question was gonna be right after that. Well, then why don't you believe it? But then did you notice that they were afraid? They're like, but if we say it's from man, then we're afraid of all the people. And I gotta say something, you guys. In culture today, we have a lot of churches where pastors are preaching what people want to hear. And we're told in God's word, right, in the New Testament that, that people are gonna mount up for them People that they have itching ears, they want to hear what they want to hear. So they have the preachers that are on TV that are telling you like, man, you can live your best life now. Jesus wants nothing but everything good for you and nothing hard. Jesus wants you to have nothing but money. Jesus wants you to have the most amazing house. Jesus doesn't want you to ever be sick. Jesus doesn't ever want you to get a hernia to have to have surgery. Jesus doesn't want any of that for any of you. That's not what I read in here. Jesus himself said, I have no place to put my head. Can you follow me? Jesus himself said, like, take up your cross. In other words, die and follow me. That doesn't line up. And yet, do you know why those churches are so big? Because people like it. But do you know what those people are most afraid of? Telling the truth. Because if they ever speak the real truth of God's word, people are going to leave their church in droves. That's the truth. And so if you're listening to people and you're like, man, I, I don't know, like that doesn't really line up with this part of scripture. Like, man, start thinking that through. Like you can't just, you can't just feed yourself that stuff and expect to get any real meat. And so here these guys were feeding this bill of goods. Man, bring your sheep that you bought for way more than it was worth and we'll kill it and you'll be fine for another year. Just go. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. Just keep coming. Come on. Come on. Let's get this done. 
That was these people. And so they were afraid because they're like, if we say that God's moving in a way that's different from what we're doing, people are going to be mad at us. We might be getting stoned. We might be getting hurt. And we don't want to put our poor little flesh out there like that. So you guys, here were these religious leaders and they're like saying, we can't answer this. And I need you guys to understand why this question matters so much. Do you realize that baptism was not a New Testament invention? Baptism is something that we see all throughout scripture. As a matter of fact, flip over with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 is the very first mention of this Hebrew concept of baptism, of this Hebrew concept of consecration, consecra- consecration or, or bathing or, or immersion, right? It says this in verse 10 of chapter 19 in Exodus. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. That word wash there is baptize. That's what it means. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you guys, if you know your word at all, then you know what Exodus chapter 20 is. Exodus chapter 20 was the 10 commandments. So what was God saying to his people? Get your heart prepared because I'm coming. Get ready, prepare your heart, wash yourself, wash your clothes, get yourself symbolically clean so that whenever I come into your presence, you can receive it. Like you're clean before me. That was the whole idea. That was the very first mention of that. Now flip over with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse seven. So we know that God used this idea of baptism, this idea of cleansing to to get into his presence. But also, you guys, Psalm 51, seven gives us another kind of indication of what baptism was viewed and why it was used then. And that is in Psalm 51, you guys, if you remember, this is when David was caught red-handed, right? Nathan came in and read him his mail, basically, right? The prophet Nathan came in to David and was like, hey, so there's this guy that has a bunch of sheep and there's this other guy that has one sheep. And this guy that has a bunch of sheep, dude, he went in and he took that one sheep whenever he had people there and he took that sheep and he killed it and he fed that to his guests so that this guy that had one sheep now has zero sheep, even though this guy had a ton of sheep already. And David's response was like, dude, who is this guy? He's dead. I'm gonna kill him. That isn't right. I can't believe he would do something like that. And Nathan was like, that's you, dude. You're that one. You're the person. You've got all these wives. You've got all these concubines. And yet you take Bathsheba. This guy's one wife, a loyal guy in your army. You take his one wife and sleep with her. You're the loser. (laughs) And so he wrote Psalm 51 in response to having his mail read, having God say like, dude, what are you doing? And I love his heart. You guys, Psalm 51 verse seven says this. David talking to God says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. And that word there again is that same word, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now I'm gonna tell you guys something about this Hebrew word that kind of means baptism. It means to be trampled clean. It means to be trampled clean. So whenever I grew up in Pennsylvania, right, you have the Amish, it was not a real big deal typically to come around and see like sometimes like the Amish girls, they would have this big like pan and they would like big huge tub or whatever and they would have like these sheets in it and they'd be tromping around in it and it was all soapy water and they would be like tromping on the sheets to try to like wash it and then they would run it over the board and then they would like wring it out, you know, and hang it up to dry. And so, but like this idea of being trampled clean, you're getting the dirt off. Think of it too like this. It kind of has this idea of a grape is trampled clean and guess what's left? Grape juice, which turns into wine. But the husk, what's left is, it's all empty. It's emptied out, it's clean. Do you understand? That's the concept here. And so David was saying like, trample me. Trample this dirty, rotten flesh out of me so that only you remain. He was telling, God was telling his people back in Exodus, like, wash your clothes. Get yourself symbolically ready, like, like trample, 
clean it. And I want you guys to think about that because I think in the modern day concept of baptism, it's still a symbol just like these were symbolic, right? This didn't save them. They weren't, this salvation was not found in these things. Salvation is only found in God and Christ, right? But the concept of it is the same thing we hold to whenever we baptize. We baptize, we put someone all the way under the water. Why? Because the old you is died, is dead. And you come back up renewed in Christ. You're dead to your sin and you're alive in Christ, right? It's an outward expression of what's already happened inwardly. But can I, I, I want us to get this Old Testament idea a little bit too. There's a, a verse, or not a verse, a, a song lyric that I love by this band called Mike Mains and the Branches. And it's a song lyric that says this. It says, hold me under the water until the old me dies and slips out of this body. And I always love that lyric because it's so visceral. And I think it's the truth. Like whenever I was baptized, I was like, oh Lord, just get rid of me. Get rid of the old me. Here's the problem. If he did hold me under the water until the old me died and slipped out of my body, I'd be in heaven. <laughs> right? It's a work. We're being sanctified day by day. But the heart concept of that, that, that thought of saying, Lord, trample out of me the bad stuff. Lord, work out of me those things that are not of you, but of me, my flesh. We all need that day by day, don't we? Isn't that the walk of sanctifying? Isn't that the whole concept of what Jesus calls us to? If you're here today and you're not a believer, can I tell you something? No one expects perfection because you're looking at a bunch of imperfect people. The only people I find to find, to kind of like hold people to such a level of perfection are those that don't know Jesus. They're usually the ones that are like, oh, you Christians, you're all hypocrites. You're right, so are you. We all are. You Christians are dumb. So are you. None of us know everything. Nobody. Nobody. Right? Do you get what I'm getting at? Like, man, the more we get a hold of the fact that we're a work in progress, the more we understand that, you guys, the more I think we're getting to the heart of what Jesus is going to be telling us here today. So we have these two Old Testament ideas of baptism. And you know how cleanly they fall in line with John's baptism? What was John's baptism about? Do you guys remember when we read about it? It was this. John was sent literally to prepare the way for the Lord to arrive. Just like in Exodus, God said, clean yourself. I'm going to be in your presence. I'm coming. He was saying, hey, clean yourself. God's coming. That's what John's baptism was all about. And the second thing it was about was repenting of your sin, of recognizing you are not all that in a bag of chips. You don't have everything figured out and you need to know that and you need to repent. That was the two reasons John Baps, John's baptism existed. That's why that freak set out next to the Jordan River eating bugs and waiting for people to come to him so that he could be like, I'm doing my job. I'm showing people through this one act, which they have very clear ties to in the Old Testament, that this is what is happening, that something on the horizon is coming, and it's a huge change. And so many people got a hold of that fact, but guess who didn't? People that were religious. So, verse 28, let's keep reading. They didn't answer. They said they didn't know. Well, Jesus told them, okay, fine, I'm not telling you. But then he says this, but what do you think? A man has two sons, verse 28, right? And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And that son answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent, or we could change the word out there and say repent, and believe the work he was doing. You didn't relent. You didn't say like, man, there's something there. What's going on there? I want to know more about that. No. They were like, nope, that guy's an idiot. He's wrong. He's a freak. We don't want to hear it. And he's taken away our revenue stream because they're out here next to the Jordan River instead of being where they should be spending their money. 
so dirty, so arrogant, so wrong. And so Jesus tells them this parable and he asks this question, who, who is doing the will of the father? The first son says no, but then he goes and does it because he feels bad. He repents. He recognizes, man, I shouldn't have said no. I should just do it. The second son says this. He's like, oh, yes, I'm already on I'm on my way. Yeah, I'm going, I'm going. I got it all figured out. Yeah, I've got this. I've got it. Don't worry about it. But then he never goes. And so Jesus drops this major bomb on the religious leaders. He's like, hey, guys, you're the second son. He goes one step further. He says this. The first son in this parable, they're tax collectors and harlots. They're the people that you despise. They're the people that you won't even allow in your presence because they're so scummy. They're so bad. They're so horrible that you could not be caught dead with them. Those are the people that are getting into the kingdom of heaven. Why? That should be the question it brings up in all of our hearts. Why? How does that equate to doing the will of the Father? It's an I think it, it's, it gives us a clearer understanding of what the will of the Father is. What is the will of the Father, you guys? Repent and believe. Doing the will of the Father is repenting and believing. Repenting and believing. That's what it's all about. If you're here today and you're a Christian, and you've gotten caught up in this idea, you've believed the lie of the enemy, or you in your own flesh think somehow you've got to do better, you've missed it can't do better. Guess who can do better? God working in you. Does that make sense? I'm not saying we don't have a part to play in it, right? Like I talked about this in first service. Like if you're like, Lord, I want to stop smoking weed. Well, you don't just keep putting a doobie to your mouth. You stop it. But you stopping it, you being like, oh, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. It's not your power that's going to get it done. It's the power of Christ in you that's going to get that done right? I talk to a lot of people that are addicted to porn and I'm like, let's put some blocks on your phone and on your computer and do those things. Those are good things, but those things will not save you from looking at porn. God saves you. God does that work in your heart. God changes the way you look at women. God changes the way you look at other people as a whole, that they're not a commodity, that they're human beings and they're worth more than what you're treating them as. God does that work in your heart. Is there things that we do in the process of that? Of course. But what is doing the will of the Father? Doing the will of the Father is repenting and saying, God, I don't have this figured out. And God, I know these eyes and I know this brain and I want nothing more than to see every person that I possibly can naked on a computer screen. That's my, that's my bend. Or and I, you know, whatever that is for you, or I want to do nothing but smoke and do every drug I can possibly get my hand on to feel every feeling I can possibly feel, or I want to get as drunk as I possibly can and be the life of every party, or whatever that is. Do you understand? I don't know what that is for you, but I know we all have got them. Are, Are you willing to say, to do the will of the Father and say, God, I, I don't want this. Like, I really don't. I want you to change my heart. I'm like, Lord, you even know that I, I don't even want the brain to have the thought to think these things, but I do. And so God, would you help me to take those away? Would you change my heart? Would you do what only you can do? That's the heart. That's the heart of the tax collector and the harlot that says, I don't know any other way of life. This is what my mom did. And so this is what I do. Or this is what I grew up with and so I don't know what else. Or I I wanted money and I'm sorry, but I like money and I don't know what to do with this, but I I know I don't want that. I really don't want that. We're reading the gospel of Matthew. Do you understand that when he wrote down tax collector that he had to look and say, that's me. That's what I stopped doing. Thank you, Jesus. So, Doing the will of God is literally repenting and believing that it is literally only Jesus that will get you to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. You are not perfect. You never will be. Stop trying to hold yourself to that standard. Let God work that out in you. You will be changed. There should be change in your life. There will be change in our lives. 
If you're here today and you're not a believer, can I just encourage you in something? Here's the reality. A non-believer, to be honest, has the same exact place they have to be. They have to repent and believe. But that takes a first realization of this, that they're not all that in a bag of chips either. If you talk to a lot of people, non-believers, they want to say like, well, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You've missed it. You're not good. I'm not good either. None of us are. That's just the truth, isn't it? Like, that idea of repentance has to start with a heart that recognizes that they're not everything. We're not everything. And we can't do this on our own. You guys, it's the same today. I think there are many second sons that attend church regularly. I think there are many second sons that maybe have been walking with the Lord for a while and they think, man, I've got all this sewn up. I got it all figured out. I know exactly what I'm doing here. Like I know God's word better than even the pastor does and I don't need anybody to tell me what's up because I know it already. And if you don't look like me, sound like me or talk like me, then you're probably wrong. And I'm just here to tell you that. I think we have a lot of that going on in churches today. Sadly, I hope that's not true in our church. I hope it's never true in our church because, but can I just be really real with you guys and say this? I think we're all one millisecond away from being that person. Aren't we? I can be that way sometimes. There's times when God has to take me behind the woodshed and be like, you know what? Do you, did you forget where you came from? Did you forget what I saved you from? Like, yeah, you've been walking with me for a while and yeah, now you're a pastor. You think you're something special? No, you still have work to do. And I need to hear that. So that when I'm talking to people, I can have a heart that says, man, I'm with you. I'm with you, like, but I know the answer, Jesus. Like, let's let Jesus work on this. Let's pray together. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's see God do a change in your life. And and if there's any, any testimony, any example I have, it's just that I know where I started and I know where I'm here now and I'm not where I was back then. And I still have a long way to go, but dude, I can show you that God does grow you. God is faithful and God will always be faithful. Like I can show you that in my life. Do you know what I'm getting at? We have a lot of second sons that think that doing their good deeds or saying the right thing or volunteering enough is gonna somehow work on getting them to heaven faster and it doesn't. It's only Jesus that gets us to heaven. It's the work that Jesus did that gets us to heaven. This is very simplistic stuff, but I feel like even in the church, you guys, the enemy loves to somehow twist it and turn it into something that it's not. Like, I attend every event the church holds and you don't, you loser. What's that have to do with anything? On the flip side, if you're not attending any events... (laughs) Are you part of our church, right? <laughs> That's the other side of that coin. But, but the reality is, you guys, is that, man, what does a first son realize? A first son realizes this, that we came in to this relationship with God with nothing. The only two things we came in with were want and need. The only thing we're gonna have on the day we die is want and need. A want for a life that is more righteous and pure to be like Christ and a need for Jesus to do that. That's it. That's all we've got every day. That's what you start with and that's what you end with. It's those people that realize that their own goodness is like filthy rags. It's those people that realize, man, that they're gonna say the wrong things and do the wrong things at the wrong times and they recognize that none of their work, good or bad, is going to get them from heaven or get them to heaven or keep them out of heaven. The only way to heaven is Jesus. That's that first, or that second son, that's that first son, I'm sorry, the one that's saying like, man, even if I said no to begin with, I want to do it now. Verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Who did all that work? The landowner, right? Did you see anybody else mentioned there? The landowner did all that work, and then it says, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that he might receive its fruit. 
And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. The last of all, then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize, in his, seize his inheritance. And so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whomever it, on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You guys, Jesus continues with another parable right after the first one. And he, he lays this parable on him. And what is he saying? He's saying this clearly. He's saying, you people, you religious leaders, you people that haven't repented, that haven't come to me, that haven't figured out that you are the ones that are missing it and everyone else is kind of getting it. It's you people that are being the most disobedient. You're not being obedient to God's will. And I need us to get our heads around this because the religious leaders, you guys, they followed the law. They followed as much as they could all 613 laws that were laid out in the Old Testament. In their estimation, they were by far the top. They were the best at this. They did better and they were more righteous than everybody else. And here's Jesus saying, no, you're the least because you're not doing my will. You're not repenting. You're not doing it. You're not being obedient to the things I've called you to. And I want you guys to see too that here again, he predicts his own death at their hands. And you guys see that he says about all the servants that got sent, that they killed him, they stoned him, they, they did all these things. Well, those servants, you guys, well, let's just go through. What was the vineyard? The vineyard was God's people planted in the promised land. Who did all the work to get that done? God. God did all that work. God planted this vineyard. Who's the vineyard now? Christians. The church. Right? And his people. They're still in there. But you do realize that, like, basically, he was saying to these guys, like, man, God planted the vineyard. God is the vineyard owner. The servants of the vineyard owner are the prophets. The vine dressers, though, you guys, are the religious leaders and the people of Israel. Those religious leaders that did not want to hear what God was doing. Those people of Israel that were just like too busy just doing their own thing and not wanting to hear it, just wanting to come in and check the block of church and say like, I'm done. I can just, can I go now? I've got other things to do. I want to go watch the football game. I want to go do what I want to do. Can I just get out of here? Right? Those, that was those people. The son of the vineyard was obviously Jesus. Here he is predicting his death. Everyone else that they talked about died in the vineyard. But do you notice what Jesus says about himself? You're too cowardly to even kill me in here. You're going to send me outside of the city, outside of the vineyard. It's kind of sad. Golgotha, you guys, sits outside of the city where Jesus died, where Jesus was carried his cross to. It sits outside the city. He is here predicting to them like, you guys, you're going to take me out and I still love you enough that I'm here talking to you. Think about it. If you guys were God in flesh, would you talk to the people that were going to murder you in a few days? <laughs> I don't know. I might preempt it and be like, you're dead. <laughs> right? Do you get what I'm saying? Do you see how different of a heart Jesus comes with? And do you see how we can never get to a place where we're like, we're like Jesus completely. No, we're not. We're not. We can't be. But we can ask God to change our hearts to become more like him, to think differently about things. That we can do, that we should do. That's what the calling that we have on our lives as Christians is, to be more like Jesus. You guys, do you realize that when he says about the fact that he sent all his servants, this should strike a chord with them. 
says he beat one and killed one and stoned another. You guys, every prophet in the Old Testament that was sent to them, almost every one of them died horrific deaths. The prophet Isaiah was killed by one of the kings. Do you know how? He was sawn in half and they started at the bottom and worked their way up so that his brain was intact long enough until they sawed that in half too. They did it in the most absolutely painful and horrific way they could to make him know that he was being punished. That was a pretty gruesome one. What about all the ones that were stoned? That's a pretty gruesome prospect too. Or just killed. That's what they did to their people. The people that God sent that said, hey, here's your voice. I, I want you to hear what I have to say. They killed them. They took them out. And even the ones that lived, you guys, didn't live good lives, right? Like Jeremiah, it doesn't, we're reading in the book of Ezekiel on Wednesday nights and you read and you're like, man, this is a hard book. It, it's a very hard book because he was saying hard things to his people that were hard-headed and wouldn't listen. But Jeremiah, man, I'm like, we get to, the, through the book of Jeremiah, he was a contemporary of Ezekiel. They were at the same time. And Daniel, all three of those guys lived at the same time. There's even mentions of each other in their books. And so we see in Jeremiah, what did he write after everybody was taken away from Jerusalem? And after all that happened, what did he write? He wrote lamentations. He wrote a lament. He wrote uh, he's known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because his life wasn't easy. At one point he was in jail and he's like, can I just stop now? Like, can you just shut me up, please? I want to be done. I don't want to do this anymore. And then the very next set of words that we read is he says, but what else would I say? You've given me words of life to speak and I'm going to speak them. That's the heart of a prophet. You guys, he asks these vine dressers, if they've ever read. Again, I love that. So snarky, right? He says like, man, have you not ever read this? You learned people that know everything according to you. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118, verse 22 through 23. And he was telling them the truth. He's making it very clear. Like, you guys, if you keep going down this path, it's not gonna end well for you. If you keep walking this path, this will not end well for you. Verse 45. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Smart people. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So here they are again. They're ticked off in their arrogance. They're, they're frustrated and annoyed because, Jesus, how dare you, Hick, talk poor of us? How dare you come against all of our education and come against all of our authority and do these things and say these things? Like, how dare you? And how dare you say that tax collectors and harlots are gonna make it to heaven before us? Who are you? Who do you think you are? And they didn't like it. And they were like, we wanna end you right here. But we can't because we're cowards. Do you catch that? The whole way through this thing, they're a bunch of cowards. And I've got to say something to you guys. And this might sound harsh, but if you're here today and you're a Christian, can I tell you something? If you are a wishy-washy Christian, if you're the person that goes out and hangs out with certain friends and says, oh, well, you know, I don't know, man. Whatever's good for you is good for you, but I, I don't know. Or you're like one of those people that's like, well, I'm not going to tell anybody about Jesus because they might not think the same of me and they might not like me and I'm afraid. Can I just tell you something? I have more respect for the atheist. It's like there is no God, period and you're a moron if you think otherwise, I have more respect for that person than I do a wishy-washy Christian. Because it's a question I've got to ask you, wishy-washy Christian. Do you actually believe that Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again for your sins? Because if you do, that is the best news that the whole world has ever heard or will ever hear. And the answer to that question of Jesus or no Jesus is literally where your eternity is going to be decided in heaven or in hell. How dare you be such a coward as to not step up and tell people about Jesus? I have more respect for an atheist that just really thinks in their own wisdom that there is no God. But I have a question for those atheists and that is this. Do you actually think you're in control? Because you're not. If you're going to drop dead, you're not going to be in control of that moment. 
You don't know if you're going to catch COVID or a cold or cancer or anything. Who does control that? Not you. You actually think that we're just happenstance come across DNA and everything came together? Even scientists, like really deep in the, dyed in the wool, evolutionists that study hard are now coming to the point where they're like, the more we discover, the more we realize that this can't be true. There's got to be a creator. There's got to be something that happened before this. But the real thing is not an argument. Do you understand that? Christian, we have the best news in the world, and that is this, that we're beggars, but we know where the bread is, and all we have to do is tell people, come and eat the bread. Like, eat it. Eat the bread of life in Christ. Come to know who Jesus is. It doesn't, it's not a fix-all. It fixes your eternal destination. But this walk on this earth is going to be hard. But it gives you answers. It gives you peace. It gives you things that you don't otherwise have that will not be found if you are your own God. And they definitely will not be found if you think that this is all just happenstance because if that's the point, what is the point? But Christian... Why are we not sharing that information? Why? We shouldn't be walking around in fear. And so I want to challenge us, you guys. If you're here today and you're like, man, I don't talk about God at work or Jesus at work because I'm afraid of what might happen. Well, check your heart, man. Check your heart. What are you afraid of? I'm not talking about tattooing Holy Bible on everybody's head because you're like, you're gonna hear me. No, I'm talking about speaking truth and love. I'm talking about telling people, Jesus is literally my salvation. Jesus is the reason that literally my breath comes out of my mouth is because I'm saying Jesus is the reason for it all. Like Jesus, it's all about Jesus. I'm being real with you guys. I'm not saying this to toot a horn. I've never understood when people said they were afraid. I don't get that. And I'm not acting like I'm some superhero because I'm not. I just really think that if you truly believe something, you're going to tell people about it. I truly believe that the Philadelphia Eagles are a better team than the Patriots. And I have no fear in telling you that. Now, I want to ask the next question. I'll say that till the day I die. Why? Because the Philadelphia Eagles are amazing. And I have some Patriots fans that will tell me the exact same thing about their team. And they're not afraid to say it. You should be afraid if you come down to Philly. But the point I'm making is, what eternal value does my football team have? None. It has zero value eternally. What eternal value does knowing Jesus have? Everything. Everything. Why are we not afraid to sit and tell others what football team we like, but we're, not af- we're too afraid to tell them about our Savior, the one that matters most, the one that literally is the transformational part of your being, the, the reason that you're being changed, Christian, is because of Jesus. Why are we not telling people about it? So you guys, today, I gotta say something. I think that we can find ourselves sometimes in the same place as these religious leaders. I think we can. I think we all can at any given moment. We still have legalistic religious people today, don't we? That are like, man, if you don't look like me, act like me, speak like me, read my version of the Bible that I say is the right one or whatever, then you're wrong. And it's like, no. No. That's not the case. I love that we're a church that has people that are in all sorts of places in their walk. Some people here don't even know Jesus yet. I pray that that changes. I pray that those people that just started coming a few weeks ago and got saved, that God works out in them his plan for their lives and that they begin changing. I pray for all of us, even if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, there's still tons of work that God has to do in your life and in my life, right? I pray that God does that. And do you know how that all happens? It happens as we come together as a church body and live and do life with each other. We just had a leadership meeting yesterday. And you know what I walked away? I walked away and I had to repent of the fact that I said things that I shouldn't have said. And I had an attitude about things that I shouldn't have had an attitude about. And I'm like, oh Lord. And 
the truth is, you guys, is I could walk around and think that I've got it all figured out and never have any meetings with anybody and never talk to anybody else. And then I would be like, I'm the man. Would it be any true? Would it be true? No. It would have no opportunity for God to show me the areas of my own life that I need work. That's the point of church. We come together to dig in one with another and to be sharpened for iron to sharpen iron, for us to hear and see in ourselves, man, I'm being a little religious in the way I look at this person. Or man, I need to really check myself because I don't know, man, like I don't, I don't want to go talk to that person because they annoy me or they're, they're whatever. Or I used to deal with that sin and I don't understand why they don't just stop doing it. It's not that hard. Instead of having the heart like Jesus and saying like, come here, come here right? Instead of being that person that takes people to Jesus and says, like, let's pray about this. Saying like, man, look, I don't, I don't know much, but here's what I do know. I know Jesus, and I know that he's changing my heart day by day. I know that I'm a different person than I was before, and I know that I've got a long way to go, and we're not perfect. That's the people that I want us to be as a church, and that's not these legalistic religious people. Another type of person, though, that I think is just as legalistic and just as religious are the hedonistic humanists. Do you ever think about that? The most judgmental people to me in all the world are the people that are the atheists that say, like, man, you're a hypocrite. Did we already say this? Is that first service or is that, did I ever say that this time? Those people that are like, you're a hypocrite. And you're like, yeah, so are you. We're all hypocrites, right? Those people, man, they think they've got it all sewn up because here's the thing. If you're a hedonistic humanist, what that means is you're following the flesh. You're just doing what you want because you like it. You're having pleasure in it. A humanist, meaning you think that humanity is God. And most atheists are humanists. Because if you ask them then what is good, they'll say what I think is good. (laughs) Or they'll give you a law that the land made up, which is humanist. Does that make sense? Those people are legalistic as well. Why? Because they're not willing to submit to authority that's higher than them. Why do I say that? Because if you're talking to an atheist or if you're talking to a humanist or if you're talking to someone out in the world, why would you have any expectation that they're gonna be any different than anybody else? Right? Like we look at people and we're like, oh man, like come on, like come on, come to know Jesus. They're not going to, just like that religious person isn't really gonna know who Jesus is until they stop thinking they've got it all figured out. So what do you do for people like that? You pray for them. You pray for religious people. Whether they're religiously Christian religious or whether they're religiously humanist, you pray for them. Because no one is without religion. You guys realize that? No one is without religion. An atheist is worshiping himself or herself. Because that's all they have to worship. And that's really sad. <laughs> personally. An agnostic, most agnostics, I believe, are atheists because an agnostic truly means this. I don't know, but I want to know who God is. I don't know that there's a God, but I want to find out. And so the first question I ask when someone's like, I'm agnostic. And the reason they say agnostic is because it sounds nicer and more scholarly than atheist, which is pretty definitive. And so people will be like, I'm agnostic. Oh, really? So what, have you, what are you searching out? Like, can I get you some books on some things? Like, I think Jesus is the only way, and I will tell you why. But like, man, what are you searching out? What religion are you looking at right now? And they're like, no, I, I've, I've done, no, no. Well, you're an atheist. If you're not searching, you're an atheist. Own it. Again, don't be wishy-washy. Don't be like a wishy-washy Christian, agnostic. <laughs> own it. Own where you are. Because you're going to own it on the day that the Lord's here. And you're going to own it when you stand before the Lord. And I would rather you own it by saying, I fell on my face before you, Lord, and and you're all I've got. That's what I'm hoping. That's my heart. That's what I'm going to do on that day. And I pray that for everybody. But at least own where you are. So guys, if you're here and you think in any area of your life, So I'm talking to Christians, non-Christians, I'm talking to everybody. If you think there's any area of your life that you can honestly, the Holy Spirit might put upon you that you think, man, I'm doing pretty good in my own righteousness. Like I'm, I'm doing pretty good at this. I gotta ask you, I think, to reevaluate that because your goodness is like filthy rags. You're missing the point. 
If you're here today and you think none of this matters, God's word is all garbage and it's all crap, you're really missing the point. If you're here to say today and you're like, well, I don't know, but I really don't really want to deal with it or either, like, I just don't want to know. I'd rather just walk in this weird middle ground where I don't really care, it doesn't matter, and I'm just going to live. You are really missing the point. And I think we can fall into some of these ideas in our lives in different areas, even though we're Christians and we're saved and we're walking with the Lord. Do you get what I'm getting at? I'm not talking about you losing your salvation or gaining. I'm talking about this idea of what does our lives look like? Because to me, you guys, if our children, if we talk and think about our children or our wife or our husband or our job or are anything more than we think and talk about God, then I think somehow we need to go back and examine where we're missing the point. It's time. I got a lot more notes too. We're going to pray. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.